Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome to the show today. We've got a great podcast with a great guest, Drew Chacon. He is a world-class fly tire. He's written 17 books. It started out with one called Feather Brain, which is one of my favorite fly tying books. Drew has a wide amount of knowledge on all things fly tying and fishing, and we have a really good conversation. But I think that that is the, the main problem, is how the fly is moving. And I think um, that if you're, if you're going to count on the crab looking natural, then you have to really dial in sync rate and make sure it's not pinwheeling or doing anything like that. We've got a couple of announcements to make before we get started on that. We have three segments for the Tom Rowland podcast. We have the How To Tuesday episode, which is the first one of the week. Then this is a Wednesday episode, a full length episode. And then on Friday, we drop an episode called Physical Friday, which is in intended to help us all to stay in good shape so we can hunt and fish and hike and backpack and ski and do everything that we want to do for as long as we can in our life. What we're going to do is we're going to start moving the Physical Friday episodes over to their own YouTube channel. Tom Rowland Podcast has a YouTube channel. You just search, search it out or look in the uh, description of this podcast below and you can get a link to that it would be awesome if we could get a bunch of followers uh, subscribers on the YouTube channel and the way that we're going to do this eventually everything podcast is going to move over there but it's not going to happen anytime fast we're going to start with the physical Friday and put that over there and then we'll start moving some stuff that is not necessarily fishing related over there and the last thing to go will probably be the uh, How To Tuesday episodes that are very fishing focused and fishing related. But eventually, everything's going to move over to the Tom Rowland Podcast YouTube channel. So please go over there and subscribe on that. I also like to thank everybody that watches and listens to this podcast. It's been so fun to watch it grow and get bigger and bigger every week. It's been fantastic. Drew Chacon. He is a world-class fly tire, like I told you before. 17 books and counting. Doesn't seem to be slowing down. He hosts trips. He has uh, got a coaching role in, in doing these trips, and he's a really interesting guy. So here we go with Drew Chacone. I'm Drew Chacone, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Drew, what's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Uh, good to be back on the show with you. I know. I'm glad to have you. It looks like we got you right in your tie-in tie studio. Look at all that material oh, yeah. behind you. That's, a, that's awesome, man. Floor-to-ceiling uh, Tupperware containers. <laughs> the key is numbering them for all you uh, guys trying to organize your stuff because you can put it all in containers, but then when you put them back, you never find it again. So you have to have, like, craft for 14 
eyeball six, you know, and then you start to remember it and that, then you can do it with some sort of efficiency. But if you don't number it, it's a debacle. Yeah. Well, how much uh, fly tying stuff do you think you've accumulated over your career? Well, when I started, I kind of took over from another commercial fly tire. So I had his entire lifetime um, worth of stuff. And then a number of friends have passed and bequeathed me um, all of their collections. So I have way more than um, I would need or my kids' kids would ever need. So I don't know. When I check out of the game, somebody's going to get like a garbage, you know, truck load of stuff you know man i tied flies for for a while i still you know dabble with it but for a while i got pretty serious about it and was trying to you know i'd go through randall kaufman's book or something like that and i'd be like i want to tie this one so i'd go to the store and i'd get everything i needed for that you know like a recipe that you go to the grocery store i'd get every little thing i needed well you get way more than you need right and then you have all this stuff and even with that i have shelves of fly tying stuff. I can't imagine how much you have probably way more than what we're looking at. behind. Yeah. You. I mean, if I uh, were to take my phone and just kind of pan through just feathers, I think it would probably blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds. Of, well, the other thing is, you know, like when the manufacturers want you to tie with something and try it out, they send you like, Hey, well, here's every color right. of this new <laughs> material. Okay. You know, we only use tan and white, so yeah. I don't know what the, you know, the... And you the, use, like, three three strands of, of yeah. crystal flash or something like that, and you have all yeah. this other and stuff. and then you so cut it out of the fly when you're on the water anyways, you know, because <laughs> it's got to be the flash. You yeah, know, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Where What do you see has improved the most? I mean, of course, synthetic materials coming around, but, like, you mentioned feathers, and, I mean, they have, like, chickens now bred specifically for hackles and and you can have better and better and better hackles what do you think has improved the most in the time that you've been tying well first let me say feathers i think have gone the other way oh they have. i think they're great for uh trout flies and stuff where you need to palmer but for all the old um you know like tarpon style flies where you want that real thick quill or ricus they've kind of genetically bred that out so i have like my my coveted like father's capes, the chickens he killed in the garage kind of stuff, you know, where the, the feathers are like really thick and they're awesome, but you can't find them like that anymore. Um, I think um, as far as stuff that's really come on, hooks are just incredible. Um, You know, you gotta be careful. They're so sharp and it sounds crazy, but like my mentors would be like, Oh, we'll just grab a, a file and you take the old, 34007, you hit it twice with this big, you know, uh, foot-long file, and that's how you keep them sharp. But, like, the Gamagatsus and stuff that I tie on, oh, my gosh. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times you reach in the box too fast. Just go like, oh, on to the next one. You're like, oh, yeah. you know, that underneath the fingernail. One of the questions that I was asking people at the, at the end of the podcast was, what uh, technology do you think has improved your fishing the most? And Richard Black um, was the first one to say that hook technology has has improved, you know, the sharpness of the hooks. And it is, you know, for people that are have gotten started after chemically sharpened hooks, they don't remember. But, man, I mean, like that 34007, that thing would be so dull coming out of the package 
it, yeah. you, you would never get a tarpon on it. And, yeah. and then you would have to sharpen it. And there was all these different styles of sharpening, either short and blunt or long and needle-like. And, and uh, yeah. you know. It that just, was a it's whole other religion right there. It's yeah. just how you sharpen your hooks. So, I mean, for me, I still, I still wear my belt buckle with the file on the inside. You know, you kind of touch them up on the water kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, hooks, for me, I think I, could, I would tell any, any tire the – the most critical thing you can do after your vice is a pair of scissors. Um, if you really want to take your fly tying to the next level, go invest in the best pair of scissors you can afford because that is the one thing that I can't do without is really good scissors. Mm -hmm. Do you like the offset scissors or do you just have regular uh, scissors? My favorite ones right now are these Umqua um, TMCs. Yeah. Um, these things are razor blades, but you got to be really careful because if they fall off your bench, they're donezo. Cause magically it's like they, they automatically hit point first. You know, you drop bread off the counter. It always lands bread side down. Those either stick in your foot or, or they break the tip off and they're, they're one and done. So, um, Do you, hold, those... you hold those in your hand when you're tying though, right? I never put them down. They're yeah. always on this finger, yeah. and you, you get to the point where you're comfortable. And I, I, I keep telling myself, you got to be careful because I, I'm always touching my face and doing stuff. And these things are, these are so sharp that you know you, you have to be acutely aware of your hands, mm -hmm. like what you're doing with your hands. You reach down to scratch the dog; it runs out crying. You know, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah. You just, I liked. You, I had some that. Um, you know, when I ask about offset, I, that's what I meant. Is like you keep them around one finger, but then there was like a shorter handle you oh, put around the. Oh yeah. You could yeah. keep it in your hand all the time, and those those really really helped. I still have those things. I don't they're, know who made them. But. I think I think once you become real serious about tying, and especially production tying. The, once you get in that habit of having them in your hands, everything gets faster. You realize you don't ever really use the scissors. Like, you know, you're not in there doing yeah. micro trims. You're, you're doing this. You're just kind of jabbing stuff like cutting feathers off or thread or whatever. So a lot of times you just leave them kind of in your hand and partially open. Yeah. That, that made my tying so much faster when I learned that trick of never putting the scissors down. Um, well, before we get going too too much, we have this new um, section called the hot seat. And these questions are kind of either or, preference. You could pass if you okay. don't like them, but it's not like... It's not like a gotcha question. They're just kind of interesting questions, I think. Politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, there's no political questions here, except for the first two. Okay. Okay. Here come the first two. And you could you could say they're political if you want, but Okay. East Coast or West Coast? Ooh. Um East Coast. East Coast or West Coast of Florida? West Coast. <laughs> Early fishing memory or trip that made you a lifetime angler? Uh, early fishing memory. Mm -hmm. Do you have one? I do. Yep. Um, I'll try not to get, you know, all misty eyed or anything, but um, my grandfather was um, dying of brain cancer and hadn't spoke in about a year. And he was a game warden and an FBI agent. And um, he was kind of upstairs in bed, and I was the 
the little guy that followed him around all the time. And I was down on the dock, and it was Easter. And I had tied my um, – one of the first flies I ever came up with myself. It was – I don't know. It was like a like a like just a streamer, silver red tail chartreuse top, and everybody, the whole family was upstairs, and I was down on the dock, messing around with it. And out of nowhere, this giant landlocked salmon came up and just garbaged it. And I mean, it was literally I was messing around off the dock, making little roll casts. And, I, I mean, the big landlocked salmon for Seneca Lake where I grew up was, you know, like this off the dock. But this one was double that. And I landed it, ran upstairs to my grandmother, and I was like, look at this thing. And she was like, well, get in there and show your grandfather. And it's dripping blood all over, <laughs> but she didn't care. And he sat up in bed. And granted, the man hadn't spoke. And he said, nice fish, Andy. And when I was little... You know, like, that's what they called me, and I was like, Ugh, and everybody just kind of stood there agape. And after that, he didn't he didn't really speak anymore, but he came to, he acknowledged me, and, like, it was one of those, like, wow. you know, everybody. So, for me, that was kind of the, the lightning rod. It was like, um, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, like, create flies, and, you know, fishing's my deal, but that was the moment where it was like, like you'd been struck by lightning. Like everybody just kind of stood there and like, couldn't believe that he talked, let wow. alone knew my name. That's so cool. What a great story. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, okay. So we'll get back onto the, uh, the, the deal. I think I already know the answer to this one. Spinning rod, conventional or fly rod. D all the above. Um, I love, um, fly fishing, obviously, but, you know, I think people forget how much fun it is to go out back and put on a cork and sit on the dock with some kids and rip lips or flip plugs underneath bushes. I mean, I'm I'm in for everything. I love it. That's not the answer I thought. I thought it was fly for sure. Ride uh, or die, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, inshore or offshore? Um. I, I would, my knee jerk's inshore, but I'm really starting to get into it. And I'm working on a book for blue water flies now. And I'm trying to catch some pelagics, uh, billfish in particularly on flies. So um, uh, inshore with the hopes of becoming an offshore guy. Yeah, I like it. Uh, would you, uh, river, lake, or backcountry? Backcountry, unequivocally. Would you have a reptile as a pet? No, <laughs> I'm kind of like Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not afraid of them. I just don't like them. Yes. <laughs> uh, coffee, tea, or energy drink? Uh, coffee, uh, like a four cups a day minimum. Right on. Um, mountains, beaches, mountains or beaches for vacation? Beaches. Favorite fishing movie or TV show? Spanish fly Good was like what I grew up with. Winter Olympics or Summer Olympics? Summer. Going out on a limb here. Favorite pro wrestler of all time? Ooh. Um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. <laughs> nice. Yeah, with the two by four. 
Yeah, that's it. it. Yeah, that's old school right there. I was going out on a limb to see if you were really a wrestling fan, and you pulled I, out a real I, a real wrestler right there. That's pretty. It impressive. was tough because Jake the Snake also was uh, and uh, uh, the British Bulldog. Yes, you know I grew up in the in that era. Mm-hmm. You know where we had the big rubber guys that you'd play with. Sure, yeah. We, we call it the cassette era. We don't like to say old. We were from the cassette era. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was too. Sunrise or sunset? Uh, sunrise. Country, classic rock, or rap? Ooh, classic rock, country, classic country, Hank. There you go. Okay. Best catch in your career? You probably already told us. Uh, fish wise, I mean, I was gonna go with the standard wife. There you go. Uh, I like covered, it. <laughs> covered all. <laughs> you never know; she might listen to this. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> gonna go with wife, and then maybe uh, Monster Snook or GT or something. I don't know. Permit. What about GTs? Where have you caught those? Uh, I went to Cosmolito. Oh, nice. Um, that was a gift from a client that hurt himself and couldn't go. And it was one of those like, Hey, I got something for you. You got like seven, eight weeks to get your stuff together and everything's paid for. And it was my wife's like, you just, you're going, you have to go. So so great. Yeah, it was incredible. That's so great. Uh, a movie that makes you laugh. Uh, great outdoors. (laughs) Text or calls. Uh, calls. Last book you remember reading or your favorite book? Uh, I think I've officially written more books than I've read. <laughs> so uh, Land Remembered was the book about Florida. So good. That, that one I love. I love that book. I listened to that on audio. And Me too. It was, it was incredible. I love that book. Highly recommended for anybody. That's People listening ask to Land me Remember. all the time, what's the, what book are you reading? And I don't read books. I'm way too, I can't sit still. So like, even like when I walk the beach, like on like looking for snook, I always have an audio book going. So I, I do a couple audio books, you know, a month probably just burning through them. Yeah. I'm reading one or listening to one right now that you would love. It's called um, younger next year. Okay. It's about dudes, you know, like getting up there and it's like when they retire and their brain kind of goes and their body blows out. And, you know, it's all about um, what you do to um, push off disease and, you know, decay. And it's it's really interesting. Not that, you know, it's they talk about like, okay, you're 60 now. I'm 44. But like, I figure it can't hurt to start early. All right. There's another one by Peter Atia on that same kind of deal. A little more physical, but it's called Outlive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, I don't know, there's a couple of chapters in there that are so technical that you could just fast forward through those and, and get to the the next one if, if, if it starts to put you to sleep. But it's a really, really great book. And uh, then I read another one that was, um, I have to remember what that one was. It was, I'll have to look through the, the, um, the, the book club, we have a book club here, um, but that, that 
that one, uh, Younger Next Year is not in it, but The Land Remembered is in it. So if you're looking for that book, you can go check it the out. The whole epigenesis of it is like, hey, really, as a species, we really haven't been like sitting in chairs that long. Right. I mean, we're, we're plains animals. So you got to trick your body, you know, that you got to walk, you know, five, 10 miles a day. You got to have bursts where you're hunting, you know, and if you can do that, even if you walk 15,000 steps and do, you know, the gym a couple of days a week for some weights or some, you know, circuit training or some sprints here and there, you'll be fine. Eat whatever you want. Yes. I believe it. Okay. So let's get back onto this. Uh, okay. Feathers and hair or synthetic materials for feathers and hair. You like that better. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Natural. One of your favorite bands. ACDC. Instagram or Twitter. Instagram. One thing you're afraid of. Snakes. <laughs> Gamakatsu, TM Co. owner or must add? Gamakatsu. Office, friends, or parks and rec? Ooh. Um, I don't think I've watched any of those. Okay. So I'm going to have to pass. <laughs> okay. One piece of technology other than your phone that you rely heavily on? My. Uh, Air my AirPods or earphones. Mm -hmm. Favorite fish? Snook. Android or iPhone? iPhone. Audio paper or Kindle? Audio. Yep. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Tying flies or writing books? Uh, tying flies. <laughs> and lastly, one piece of advice that served you well. Um, every trip you miss is one you never get back. I like it. Was that from your grandfather? Yep. Yeah. That's what he told me. You better get out there and get everyone you can. He sounded like a, a real badass of FBI agent and a game warden. Yeah. He, uh, he was, I think the youngest FBI agent when I, um, in history when I was a kid. Um, and I'm sure it's probably if you, um, he was a sheriff of our town, you know, just uh, hunting and fishing. That's all the man did. So all I wanted to do was be in his hip pocket, but he, uh, he got sick real early. So I didn't get to do much of that with him, but my other grandfather did. So that's all I did was hunt and fish. That's cool. And then the, the fly tying started early. What, what started you on the path of fly tying? I found, um, my parents fly tying, kit this pistachio colored sewing box in the basement full of tinsel and herders things and you know all the stuff and um it was in the winter and i was bored kind of going through the uh, picture books and everything that my parents had in this kind of like basement room it was just storage and i mm -hmm. found it in my mom's notes and i can in this book is what I found. And my parents got married at 19 and, um, for something to do, they started taking fly tying classes and oh, I cool. found my mom's notes on tying and she had like little drawings and stuff. Wow. And, um, that's what got me started. I just what? started messing around with it. And, uh, what that is that was book? It. What this art flicks, um, the master, master fly, fly tying. tying. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I have that book. Which, which really funny, is it signed, "Happy Birthday to My Father" in 1975. Wow. From my from my grandmother. So I mean, it's kind of in the blood, you know. Everybody was doing the hunting fishing thing, and when it was too cold to do that, they were inside talking about it or tying flies. So, and that's. Where did you grow up? In the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. Okay. Watkins Glen, to be exact. And what were the hunting opportunities? Deer and turkey and oh, upland yeah. birds? Like, what else yep. would, you, would you hunt? My favorite was September squirrel season. You know, when I was really little, I'd go sit in the woods with Grandpa Shacone, and he always hunted with the side-by-side double barrel. And once he let me pull both triggers, he got sick of me asking, and that was about it. But, um... <laughs> Um, but yeah, sitting in there, we'd, we'd go, you know, kick, kick out rabbits or walk, uh, for grouse or sit in the tree stand. I did a lot of bow hunting when I was a kid cause I could do it young. My dad was an archery instructor and a duck identification instructor. So we did a lot of, I think probably the most was ducks. We sat in the duck blinds on Seneca Lake and did a ton of that. That's probably my favorite. Yeah. I'm getting ready to go duck hunting. Um, day after tomorrow uh with my 85 year old dad and my two boys that's um, so great yeah well i've really researched this trip because i think my dad is a little well he could still do it he's in remarkably good shape for his age um but i wanted to kind of avoid the the, the waders and the water and the boat the little john boats yep. and you know your typical duck hunting scenario yeah. and i didn't know if that was possible and I started to ask around and talk to one of my friends who's also going to go on this trip. And he was like, oh, man, we go to Canada and there's dry fields up there. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what do you wear? Like, you had a, like, what do you, do you wear waders? And he's like, no, you could walk out there Wait. and what you're wearing. And uh, I was like, that's perfect. How do I, how do, I do this trip? And he said, uh, well, we're going this, this certain week and, and there's probably room at the lodge. And so I jumped on it last year and booked this about nine or ten months ago, probably. And it's coming. It's I, I'm going to be packing my stuff today, this afternoon. Oh um, man! But that that duck hunting up there is supposed to be amazing. We're going to be north of Calgary, north of you know around the Edmonton area, and uh, duck and goose. And my boys are in Montana, so they're just going to drive um, up there. It's 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 quite a quite a difficult place to get to um by by even by airplane it's going to take my dad not two days to get there um, you kind of you kind of get ruined though i'm going to tell you i'm sure when listen we that's what to, i'm trying to do for my dad i want to ruin him on this one it. maybe he won't even need to go that's, again that's <laughs> it the, the memory is galvanized into his psyche you know just there forever right well he certainly galvanized plenty of memories into my psyche with with duck hunts throughout my childhood, and and it's his favorite type of hunting. He he's never been a, a deer hunter or any sort of big game hunting. He loves hunting birds. He loves ducks. Are in my opinion, that would be his favorite. I would actually have to ask him. But he likes dove hunting. He likes pheasant hunting. He likes any kind of you know, you know, uh, pigeon hunting. We went down to Bolivia and did that one time. Um, 
he likes all that kind of stuff. And he's been all over the place hunting birds. But I think duck hunting is his favorite. So this is a real special trip for us. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, to have three generations up there. It's the camaraderie, that. right? Like, I mean, you can go sit in a deer blind or, you know, you just don't get, you don't get the interaction and talking. Oh, here they come, get the coffee, yes. you know, that kind of stuff. It's the whole experience, you know, where you can just be together with your family. I can't tell you how many times like we schedule our trip back to New York around when duck season is. Cause mm -hmm. my wife loves to duck hunt and my daughter will get in the blind. If she give her a couple of donuts, I mean, you have to, there's no <laughs> iPad, but there's donuts, right? Hey, you know, donuts so. are awesome. Hot chocolate and donuts. That's, that's it. That, mean, that, that is, is the currency. It's, it's worth it. Every, I mean, I, that's how I, well, actually I, that's how I learned how to drink black coffee is in a duck blind because Me too. my dad brought, you know, his crappy old thermos that would literally stay warm for about three minutes. And, you know, and the a cold, green a, a yeah, the green Stanley. Exactly. And it was, it. it was so, I mean, I don't think there was any insulation in the thing at all. I mean, maybe no. if it was in the truck, it would keep it warm, but to today's standards, you know, it didn't, didn't keep anything very, very warm. And so he just had just that one. It's not like we had two of them. We had one of them, and he put black coffee from the Waffle House in there at, that we stopped, you know, we stopped and ate at the Waffle House usually. And if I was cold or I wanted something, that's what I got. The, Here's your hand warmer. Yes, exactly. The coffee in that tin cup yeah. for a lid. And I was and, like, uh, you know, Dad, I see everybody else putting, like, sugar and milk in there. Like, do we have any of that? And he's like, no. Nope. <laughs> I mean, that's it. You either drink that or nothing. And so – Today, I mean, I I enjoy drinking black coffee like I always I, have. I've never put anything in it. That's the only way I drink it. And I'll tell you, you know, when I got and and not to sound like a a shameless ad, but when I got my Yeti, I burnt the hell out of myself yeah. because I was so used to it not being hot. I mean, being you you I put the Pyrex in the in the microwave and hit it for like four minutes, so it was like nuclear when you put it in that thing. And then by the time, it, you know, 9 o'clock, 8.30 came, and you, you had your first cup of coffee, it was drinkable. Yes. You do that in one of those Yetis, and the roof of your mouth is gone for the next three weeks. I know. That is the worst, burning your mouth. I burn my mouth on a, uh, um, what was that that I ate? Oh, it was oatmeal. It was at iCast. And mm -hmm. I ordered oatmeal, and it looked like when the oatmeal came and it sat down at the table— there was no steam coming off of it at all because it had like formed like a little skin over the top. And I was like, this has been sitting up there waiting for the rest of our food to be cooked for a while. And I just took a big bite and put it right in my mouth. And I burnt my mouth so bad. And it was weeks before it was, <laughs> it was better. Like, and I'd learned my lesson that and French onion soup. I've learned my lesson on that too. That it's hot like cheese. Napalm. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and also I went to a particular steakhouse where they, they like to brag about 1,500-degree um, plates, and, and they mm -hmm. do have great steaks. But I got that steak. They're like, the plate's very hot, sir. I'm like, yes, I, I know. And I took the broccoli, and I just dipped it in some of the steak sauce and popped it in my mouth, and I burnt my mouth so bad on that. So yeah. bad. I, I don't like that. I don't like burning my mouth. I don't usually yeah, you, have like super hot things. Like I'll pour my coffee, I'll let it, I'll let it cool down a little bit before I even drink it. I don't know why. I guess that goes back to the duck blind again because I learned how to drink black cold coffee, and it turns out that apparently that's what I 
Like. I freeze <laughs> the coffee in ice cube trays, and I cool down my coffee with coffee. Oh, you are a true pro. Uh, well, you know, you get to a point where you, you have to drink a lot of coffee. Like, I am a coffee super freak. So, you know, it, if you're going to put, like, three or four in one mug, like, yes. I use, like, the Nespresso machine or whatever because I just, you know, you. otherwise, I'm really the only one that drinks coffee. So, if you make a whole pot, then you're just throwing it away. Yeah. So, I ended up to the point where I would make a pot and then put it in ice cube trays. And now sometimes I'll just freeze a couple like flavored Nespresso ones or whatever and use them for that. Huh. If you could cook with it or whatever, but it, it works great if you want to make iced coffee or cool yeah. something down. So, have you ever had Black Rifle coffee? I have not. Oh, I've heard a lot you, about it. We gotta it. get you some Black Rifle coffee. It's the best. I love it. Yeah, they have I'd a whole bunch of try. different different kinds, but my favorite is like just I just like the the a light roast. My favorite's the Gunship, which is that's that's my new favorite. It was just black. Yeah. They have one that's called Just Black, and yeah. there's nothing fancy about it. It's just good black coffee. But then, like my coffee journey has has gone more and more into i guess coffee snobbery somebody would say or uh you know like i'm going You're a connoisseur I'm, I, well, now well, kind of kind of i can taste the difference between good coffee and bad coffee and i don't know if that's a good thing or not but i do enjoy good fresh coffee and and i like it in I, different is, ways i've i've learned how to brew it differently from just the straight up machine like the the coffee the auto drip coffee machine and then I got a French press, and I was like, yep, well, yep. this actually tastes different. Like, it's the same coffee. It tastes different. And then I learned about how you grind it up a little bit differently, and that made it taste a little different. I was oh, just, yeah. I got kind of very interested that you could take exactly the same coffee, you could brew it here, and it was marginally okay, or you could brew it here, and it was the best cup of coffee that you had ever had in your life. And then I got into the pour-over, which I think that's the I think that's the best. Yep. That's yeah. Once once you start going down that rabbit hole, you're like, well, you know, I like this roast a little bit better. Yeah. You know, you, you go, you're, you're, I would say at the gourmand stage, and the next stage for you is straight connoisseur. You well, know, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna get there because I'm not like. It's not like I won't drink bad coffee. I still drink plenty of bad coffee. You go to a oh, Waffle yeah. House or something like that. You, I'm happy to drink that coffee. But what I like about the pour over is that it the whole thing revolves around the scale and there is this accuracy to where you 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 grind up the same amount of coffee 42 grams and then you put the same amount of water in there 600 grams so that's like a I think that's like a 17 to 1 ratio or something like that. I watched mm -hmm. I watched the Black Rifle Coffee video on on YouTube and that's what they said to do and so I was like 42 grams and 600 that's easy to remember. And so I make exactly the same cup of coffee every day. Because there's nothing worse than like making a, you know, even when you do it on your machine, you, you don't measure it out exactly right. And you're like, ah, today's kind of weak or too, too strong or, you know, I don't know. But I can make the same cup of coffee every time. It's like you're flying. You, do you journal? Uh, I, well, some, yeah. I have, I go on and off of the journaling. I, I have been journaling focaccia recipe for the last six months, I've probably made it 40 times and I keep doing micro adjustments, you know, the temperature of the water, the different types of honey, you know, the, what type of rosemary I finish it with is it, you know, sea salt or molten salt on top. Like I, 
I got it to a point where it's like two stones on the bottom, 475, 26 minutes, pull it, one minute on the stone, and it comes out. You got to eat it within the first two hours because wow. it's still crispy. And I mean, baking is. I don't know. It's just it's it's one addiction from the next. Like you know, fly tying or cooking, baking takes it to that like scientific level you're talking about. Where does that where does that come from uh, with with you and your personality of of like that kind of perfection or attention to detail? And 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 obviously you have this whole part of your life where it's exactly the same on your fly tying. I wonder where that comes from. Do you have you ever thought know. about that? Like, like some some, some neuroses <laughs> or like ultra type A quest for perfection. I don't know, but I mean, it, everything is like if I care about it, it's like it's that old adage: anything worth doing is worth overdoing. I just keep doing it to the point where it's like mastered, and then I get like bored with it. Yeah, and. You know, when I was, you know, in sports, like, oh, I was a tennis pro and I, you know, played tennis for, you know, got to the point where I was like, you did it in college, did it in high school, and then you just kind of burn out, you know, like, okay, I don't want to play tennis anymore. But like, I don't know, fly tying is, is more art. So no matter how good you are at it, you can always be like, how do you get salmon flies? Crap. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's just, See, that's why you should, you should have picked up pickleball. Like that's that's the next that's the next level. Everyone keeps telling me like, hey, if you played tennis, now that you're over forty, you should move to pickleball. So well, my wife's actually been leaning on me about trying it and going to play with her or something. Oh, you're gonna be you're gonna have so much fun because you're gonna immediately be, be better than all these other people who are just getting into pickleball. Don't have a tennis background, or I yeah. think even racquetball is is a very um cro it crosses over. I was never a good tennis player, but I was a pretty decent racquetball player, and I do see that there's a good amount of crossover between the racquetball because a lot of times you're picking up the 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 pickleball very low to the ground, and then there's a lot of wrist involved in it where you know you're you're trying to catch one going out of bounds, and you you flick the wrist, and the racket's shorter. Yeah. There's there's a lot of there's no ceiling though, so typically that's where my racquetball is not an advantage in pickleball when you when you're like ceiling shot and it just goes right over the fence. Yeah, yeah, home run derby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you would you would like pickleball because uh, you'll get out there with some people that think they're pretty good, and you'll have a a, a substantial tennis background, and you will literally beat them you know, how many ever, whatever pickle point is yeah. to zero every time. Uh, I, I can't wait to try something different. You know, yeah, I, well, it's fun. Uh, what about um, when, what about the, the thought that once you uh, become good at something, you could become good at anything? Like, do you see that with your fly tying and for your tennis and, and other things? Like, is there a process that you have uh, like if you're going to take on a, this blue water fly tying or or whatever, are you going to um, think about, well, if I can master snook flies, then I can master offshore flies. Or if I can master tennis, I, I could master pickleball. I would say, you know, with the with with anything where it's like muscle memory, I'm pretty good if it's. If something like you don't have the passion for, like, hey, I need you to start taking over the books and doing accounting, 
doesn't matter how many spreadsheets. Um, you know what I mean? Like I just, I, I'm it's not going to happen. So if I want to do something, I think it's that, you know, repetitive, like I, I want to be the best at this or I want to, I want to get better at it. You just, you just keep going and keep going until you're happy with the level you're at. I think, yeah, for me, that's how I am. You know, I remember, you know, kind of like the reason I got into tennis is because my brother and his older friend wouldn't let me play because I wasn't good enough and I was hitting them out of the fence. So I would just go put on my, get my yellow Sony sports walk, <laughs> you know, and, and go over to the high school and just hit tennis balls against the big bus barn wall, you know, and I did that for hours and just got to the point, you know, took some lessons. And then, you know, by the time I was a senior, it was like, okay, who's, who's taking a whooping now, you know, like it was, I was just handing them out, but, but that it was more like I wanted to do that, you know? So if I, if you want to, if you want to be good at something, you'll find a way, you'll just keep, keep doing it until, you know, you're the level you want to be. Yeah. What about writing a book? Like you seem like you've been on a lot of different types of journeys on your, on your fly tying book writing. And how many books have you written now? Uh, 17, I think 17 books. So you're a yeah. seasoned expert in this and how I'd, I'd be interested to know, like, you know, on the first one, like when you look back on the first one, was that like you were lucky to with, with what you know now, were you lucky to have gotten that thing published or did you go on the right path right away? Um, I was lucky to get an opportunity. Um, in the, in the in the industry where everybody would cut off a finger to work in hunting or fishing there's a lot of competition and i was lucky that fly tying wasn't exactly the sexiest of sports <laughs> you know there wasn't a whole lot of guys doing it and you know it was one of those like okay there's these five guys and when they're dead fly tying's gone forever <laughs> you know like at the time that's what it felt like to me you know so um, I got an opportunity um, to uh, take a crack at like a, you know, late, late, Jay Nichols said, hey, I think that came from John at, um, at Fly Tire. They were for, or Fly Fishing Magazine. That was my first one. They, I wrote an article and they said, could you do more of these? And Jay said, well, if you can show me six, um, then we'll we'll make you an offer for like a book contract. And that was probably the most painful thing I ever did was writing that first book because I was not a writer at all. And, you know, one of my mentors said, you know, writing's like lifting weights. You're not going to bench press 300 the first day. You got to start building up and doing a little bit every day. And the best thing you can do is start a newsletter and give yourself some accountability. So write a newsletter every month, even if you only have five people reading it. And, you know, one's your, your father, you know, and your brother or whatever. Just put it out there. Give yourself accountability. So I started the Salty Fly Time Chronicle 135 months ago or something, and I haven't missed one yet. But it's um, each month is a how-to that's free on a fly, and that is why it became so easy for me because I do one every month, and, you know, after 10 months, you got a book. So, 
you know, I just randomly do them. And, you know, as I find people I want to interview and or fly patterns that people are really interested in learning to tie that, you know, there's no step-by-steps out there. People are like, Oh, how, how do we do the Bowers crab or how do you do this or that, you know, stuff that was never really published. So I hunted it down and wrote it up and then it became a chapter in a book, you know, you flesh it out yeah. a little bit more and, so that was my, my model for writing books. But the first one, I didn't have that model. It was like, okay, from scratch, write a book. And, oh, my God, it was like pulling teeth. I remember even I thought I was done, and then I sent it over to Jay, and he was like, okay, so here's here's my notes. Um, these are all things that are like need to be rewritten, or these are you know every one of your 900 pictures needs a caption. You're just like, Bleh. you know, like I can't keep going. You know, what will it take to make this end? But and I vowed never to write another book after Featherbrain. Wow. Like, nope, never gonna do another one. It, it was too, it was too laborious. It took forever. But um, I don't know you. You, I guess you forget it wears off <laughs> and, you, and you go back in. What, was the, second, in what was the second book? Um, I think I self published, um, snook flies. Um, that was the second one I did. And I did that through Amazon through KDP. Um, and then I did like redfish flies and, a couple of the more species specific because everyone was like, okay, feather brain is really cool. It was kind of like the roadmap for designing your own patterns. And you had some weird stuff in there, like dying feathers with Kool-Aid and you know, why UV works. But like, it was, it was more like, okay, um, I need a handful of really good redfish patterns or snook patterns or bonefish patterns for, you know, maybe it's, Texas or Andros or Abaco and you just got to the point where you started to drill down and say okay these are where people are going this is the information they're all asking for um it's pretty easy you got the roadmap right in front of you yeah that's interesting I would think that almost uh when I ask you that question about what's the best piece of advice you've ever or or, or that has served you well that that newsletter piece seems seems like pretty good advice. Oh yeah. That, that was up there. Um, I worked as a consultant for several years, um, after I shut down the mortgage and title business. Um, so I worked for a supply chain logistics consultant that was, I mean, he was a super niche guy, lived on Sanibel and just an incredible writer. And he did a newsletter and he had like a master class and all these things like a, uh, like a study group and he created these, you know, getaways where he'd, you know, people would come <clears throat> have a, like a share group. So I learned a lot of those techniques from him and he, you know, was really, you know, adamant that I write all the time, just keep writing. Cause that's really going to help. And he also had me, I started journaling. It wasn't really cause he had me, but I journaled words that I would hear like on these conference calls with like, you know, the CEO of Heinz or Campbell's or Sarah Levy. I mean, these are powerful business guys and they would be dropping knowledge and I'd be like, Oh, what does mellifluous mean? Or what is, you know, like, so I had this book um, or this journal of words that I would look up after the calls and then write down what they were. And, you know, I can't tell you how many pages it could be its own book now, you know, of words that I've written down that or sayings that I thought were 
funny or catchy or things I liked, but I've, I've kept that kind of log and that really helped me increase my vocabulary. And, you know, every time I'm writing, if I need like a fancy $15 word, I'm like, oh, let me just see what I got here. <laughs> you know, that's, that's <laughs> funny because like when you hear that and you hear people talk, you know, like that and they, they're talking pretty quickly, it, it's funny how like, if you if you write that word down and then you go and and you don't know what it is, you kind of get the gist of the conversation, like what they're saying. But when you go and actually look up the definition of that word, you're like, oh, this whole conversation takes on a slightly different meaning than I thought. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's funny with that. And and once you, I would I would imagine that once you became really in tune with that to where you're writing, you're you're actually looking for those words that you don't understand the meaning of exactly. Right. And then the conversation takes on slightly different meaning. And you find that you really don't need to say as much if the words you use are correct. I mean, you can use a couple of really well used words that drive a point home. And, you know, for educate, like if you're in a group of educated people, it, you know, it really kind of makes everybody stand back like, okay, what's, you know, who, you know, what am I dealing with? That guy just used a, do you have a, an example? <laughs> I, I remember um, being in line with him and he was like this really kind guy, but like we were late for a meeting and the, we we're it's Starbucks and he was getting coffee and they were just kind of jerking him around, like laughing and throwing stuff around. And like, he's like, no, could we get this going? Like I got to go. And then finally he just lost his temper. And he was like, if we could get some ambulatory people around here, you know, I was like, ambulatory, mm, I'll put that in the old log, <laughs> you know, like, you know, instead of like, I don't know. I think a well-used word has a lot more weight to it, you know, than, swearing you know yeah yeah i mean some comedians uh like brian regan i love that guy and um he his yeah he's got some interesting thoughts on cussing he never cusses never swears ever and he just said you know i just think it's lazy i just think it's easy to get that 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 quick easy laugh with with that and i choose not to do that and so like when i don't know who was the first first one first comedian to, to swear a lot um whoever it was george carlin yeah probably uh, you know <laughs> yeah. in, in that in that time frame richard and pryor richard pryor so that was like yeah. his thing right so yeah that was a unique thing but now it's like okay well now everybody does it and you get that quick laugh and brian regan's like well my thing is to not do that i'm gonna figure out a way to get the laugh without doing that and you know if he ever decided, I mean, one day Brian Regan's just going to drop it, right? Like, and, and it'll yeah. be hilarious because he's like trying out. <laughs> I laugh because I'm that way with tattoos. I don't have any <laughs> tattoos. People always ask. Well, I'm like, you, you get tattoos to be unique. I'm the only guy that's unique now. Well, I know. I'm me the, too. You know, me too. You know, but like, people ask me like, why, why don't you have any tattoos? And I'm like, dude, I, I can't, Every- I don't have, I can't, I don't have a favorite t-shirt for more than two weeks i have a t-shirt and i wear it and i'm like oh this is my favorite mean this little thing means so much to me like it's a some kind of saying or word or whatever and it's like that really means and then a month later i'm like nah, i don't know moved on 
So remember I've, the Dr. Seuss book where yeah. like I don't know they get a star and then there's two stars I do and like that. I just can't remember the name of that but I always that's what I always think about when I think about like getting tatted up because numerous times I said oh I'm gonna I'll go get a tattoo my brother you know we were gonna get something funny and I, the you know it was always like divine intervention like I got food poisoning the night before we went and I was in the hospital and it was like nope. I guess I'm not, <laughs> not getting a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> my uh, my dad always told all of the grandchildren that he would get a tattoo if they ever wanted to get one. That he would go get one with them. And you know, I guess there was like some psychology in there. Like I don't really want to take my grandfather to get a tattoo. And yeah. but he would he he did this. And so my son was like, uh, Granddad, I, I'm gonna go get a tattoo, and I want you to come with me. And he was, and he, he backpedaled, he backpedaled hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know that it was so good because my son was like all the, you know, for, for 19 years or 20 years, he's been telling me he's going to get his tattoo. And I finally take him up on it. And, he called his bluff. He called his bluff, man. And, uh, he was like, no, I'm not getting a tattoo. So that one, uh, I don't, I don't know that that one went, uh, as yeah. well as he hoped, but I don't know. Tattoos are fine. I just can't decide on anything. I I can't decide on anything that, and I I look at t-shirts as a great example, because just like I said, I'll have a favorite t-shirt and then not anymore. I I won't wear it. I'm I'm a sales guy. You know, if there's nothing I have that like, I want the new one, you know, so I'll sell that off. And I I figure if I get a tattoo, I'd be like, meh, now I need a different one, you know, like, but then, you know. Well, I think that's how it goes. And the next thing you know, you got a whole tuxedo like David A. Roth. Yeah, I I just run out of room, you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, I got plenty plenty to work with here. I I don't have one yet, so I may not get one. We're in the same boat, Rowan. (laughs) <laughs> or you just go all in like a summer vacation. You come back and you're like, check it out. Co- totally yeah. covered. <laughs> we we had a friend in Arizona and he was a straight laced dude and you'd never in a million years know it. And you'd always wear like, you know, a black T-shirt or whatever. And he came over for a pool party one time and he took his shirt off and his entire back from like, I mean, with his hairline to his belt buckle was this Poseidon scene. And it was like him pointing the trident and the fish coming out of the water. And I was like, oh, and wow. I just had no idea. Like how many thousands of hours? I mean, the color was amazing. Yeah. The artwork and detail. But he was like, yeah, so I only have one tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's across my whole back and down yes. my legs. Uh, yeah. I learned that about, um, I listened to David Lee Roth on um, Joe Rogan. And, you know, I've never seen David Lee Roth with any tattoos ever. You know, in all the Van Halen days and everything, you don't see any tattoos. But apparently he has what he calls a tuxedo, which is, I guess that's a term for being completely covered from your ankle to your collarbone, down to your wrist, but nothing, if you were wearing a regular shirt, you don't see it, nowhere. And, And he is completely covered from head to toe. You still hear me? Yeah. Did I lose you for a second? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he's completely covered from head to toe, and that's a that's called a tuxedo. Um, I didn't know that. So we're uh, almost about to run out of time here. It's been an awesome, uh, good conversation so far. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was um, the future of fly tying, and especially with something that I'm very interested in with permit flies. 
and just kind of wonder what your what your thoughts are. I mean, we've had some minor improvements with like strong arm flies and some more realistic type things. And I see some some guys tying some ultra realistic crabs, and those are good, you know. And and they they'll definitely eat them. Bonefish really like them, but with permit specifically. And you've written a good bit about permit flies. What do you? Why do you think the flies don't work very well? You know, I think um, I th- I think it's more with um, presentation and sink rate, mm-hmm. and I think that most people get excited and they try to move a crab in a way that a crab doesn't move, and that's why um, I fish the majority of times a shrimp. Um, I I like a really big um, spawning ish shrimp, you know, something that if the fish isn't reacting the way I want it to, I can impart the fly with a different movement short of falling to the bottom. If you start stripping or popping or doing anything like that with a conventional Merkin style fly, typically you get an indignant per, uh, refusal and the middle fin and they're gone. Mm-hmm. And I think um, whether it's a topwater shrimp, um, which I've seen a lot of that happening too, where guys are fishing a gurgler style or um, like a strong arm gurgler or, you know, even like the floating, I don't know if I have any here, um, something like this, which I call a, uh, a Gulf Coast drifter, which is mm-hmm. um, it's just a foam top versus you know the contraband style which is more of a belize style crab yeah um but you know a lot of guys are just fishing the claw with a little feather right but i think that that is the the main problem is how the fly is moving and i think um that if you're if you're going to count on the crab looking natural then you have to really dial in sink rate and make sure it's not pinwheeling or doing anything like that. And then, then it comes down to lead time. So if you're, um, if you're not a next level caster, you're going to have a lot of problems because you need to put the fly where the fish is going to be. If you're counting on sink rate, it's like soccer. You don't pass to the person you pass to where the spot they're running to. And that's how I think about it. If it's on a ray or if there's a couple in a group, you know, working, it's not like they're just hanging out, right? Like if the ray's still, they might be still, but for the most part, they're moving, right? So if you can put the fly in front of them and say, okay, that fish is in eight feet of water and I need to pick him to pick it up around four feet, um, you know, then how far in front do I have to cast and what fly should I be using? So there's a lot of intangibles there and, you know, moving parts. So for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to fish a shrimp, which I know sinks pretty consistently at this rate, you know, if, and, you know, with this style lead eye or whatever, and I can pop it along and I get a lot better reaction, um, to that movement mm-hmm. than, than just waiting. Have you, uh, what, so what's your permit record these days? Um, as far as landed yeah. and count one, I'm counting. Okay. Um, I have 
come unbuttoned on numerous ones at the boat. I have several leader touches, which I don't count in permit fishing. Um, I had one in Mexico that was about the size of this Yeti, which I'm not <laughs> counting. But um, my my um, my big one was caught on a um, a Merkin. Oh no, two. I caught one in Belize um, this last year. Um, I took a 12 pounder and um, I hooked another one there. So I don't know. Um, it's one of those like the game goes on forever and the yeah. party never. And so for me, it's like okay, what am I getting reactions to? A lot of it is user error. You're breaking them off or coming unbuttoned or whatever. But like, are they following that fly? Are they eating it? Are they rushing it? And and for me, I've got it dialed into a. I don't know if I have any here. It's a. Um, my favorite is a Bailey's No Name Shrimp with um, modified with hot orange eyes and um, a little hot orange spot. And I think that that, that orange um, gets her attention and it's big enough where you can cast it with pinpoint accuracy. It's not like it does the, you know, trash can lid where, you know, depending on the wind, it could be six feet to the right or six feet to the left. Sure. And it's, so, and I can also throw a much longer leader with a, with a, um, a shrimp fly than I can with a big non-aerodynamic crab. Yeah. So I go out to 14 feet on my leader. My bite's usually 15 or 12. Um, sometimes it's 20 if I'm in like the Bahamas where those fish are just like dinosaurs. But, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it is kind of getting the rest of it dialed in and not just the fly. Yeah. Is, and you, you, yeah, for you sure. Know, but, intuitive. You know, I, I, one of my favorite things in the world to do, I mean, I love fly fishing and for a long time, that's all I did. Um, but then I discovered spinning rods and live crabs. And after, you know, 10 years of going out there and having, you know, maybe my best year. I, I remember when Brett Favre was a really good quarterback. Uh, I, I would he, he threw 52 uh, touchdown passes one year. And I was like, that, that seems like a good thing. Like, that's one a week. So, and I had a lot of people coming to, to fly fish for permit. And not every week, because then we'd have a, a, a significant period of time where all we're doing is tarpon fishing. But for the rest of the year, we're, we're basically permit fishing. And I thought, well, 52 seems like a, a, a real stretch goal, but it seems kind of attainable. Like, you, could you catch one a week or average one a week? So many weeks, you'd have to catch multiple fish, and then your, your clients would catch multiple fish. And this is all on fly. And I did get there, you know, 52 permit in, in a year. And I was very happy, with that. very happy with that. I was really, really happy. And there, there's some days where you catch three, some days you catch one, you know, but a lot of days you're starting to catch them. And it was almost entirely when the fly would drop to the bottom, drop, you know, throw the fly in there close enough to where the fish can see it, let it drop to the bottom and do not move it. That was almost, that was almost, that was, that was my strategy. Right. And, and, and it, it was like the fly looked good on the way down, but then when you'd start stripping it, it didn't look good anymore, right? Like what yep. you're saying, or it would catch grass or, or something would happen and, and it wouldn't look 
good. And I've certainly had people strip it and the fish tails up on it and then goes and gets it, you know, and you, you see them actually chase down the fly. But more, that's very rare. And, and I've also seen people that will, I used to try to lead them, let it fall to the bottom, let the fish get up there, and then just move it a little bit. And that usually results in, in an atomic explosion. They seem to hate that, right? Yeah. But they would pick it up dead off the bottom. Right. But you had the cast. What you're saying is the cast had to be right there. Perfect. It had to be so close that uh, they would they would kind of look up and they'd see this thing going to the bottom like the crab had seen them. And they're they're shooting down to the bottom to to get out of the way. And then uh, if you ever watch a crab like snorkel and put a crab in the water, they will go down and then they'll put their crab. They'll put their claws up yeah. and they'll just sit there. Right. They'll rely on camouflage and they'll sit there and maybe they move very, very slowly. But that was my strategy. And just just let them see it. But you couldn't cast too close because you'd spook them. But you needed to cast close enough to where maybe they look up and they see it out of the corner of their eye. They're like, ah, that's I'm going for that. And they go over there and they eat it. Um, But what I really like to do, even more than all of that, is throw crabs like live crabs on spinning rods. Mm -hmm. And man, you can catch 52 in no time. Yeah. And, and it works great. It, it works. So it works so well. And, and so I kind of, um, I really like it because first of all, I spent so many years trying to catch so few of these fish. And then I got to where I felt like I was pretty good at it, but still it's so few fish compared to any other style of fishing that we're doing. I mean, catching 52 a year sounds amazing, but it's really one a week. If you caught one bonefish a week, that would be terrible. If you caught one tarpon a week, that would be terrible. If you caught one redfish a week, oh my gosh, that would be horrible. Uh, and, with and any style the, of tackle, right? And you live in the Keys, right? So yeah, you're, the, so best, you're, the best place. Yeah, and you're fishing for them all the time. Right. And what you got to remember, and what, what I have to keep as top of mind is, most of my clients, um, I'm not a guide. Uh, I'm a uh, host and a, you know, I, I, I take people places and I coach. So most people, it's like jumping off the deep end. They go from trout to permit. And you could have the best day on the water ever, but if they don't catch one, it's a bad day, right? right. So, yes. like, I really hate permit fishing compared to everything else because it's just, I, I'm, you know, I'm an I would say I spend my time on perfecting flies and I spend most of my time fishing for bonefish. If I'm in the Bahamas with clients or, um, snook and redfish here. Um, I don't baby tarpon, but I don't do a lot of big tarpon. I don't do a lot of permit fishing in the keys almost never. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's just, it, it takes a special kind of person to to devote themselves into something that difficult the guys that are like ride or die that only permit fish but they live in montana and you know what i mean like when they're yeah. saltwater that's that's a special breed of human i mean i guess or or it's like um you know like del brown del brown had done it all man i mean he had caught plenty of tarpon I mean, he's fishing with yeah. steve huff he's 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 got had plenty of opportunities he basically you know had had enough of tarpon fishing had enough of bone fishing and yep. now it's like okay well here's this challenge of no one's catching these fish so if we even caught a couple 
like let's pioneer this sport and we we have to tie this fly that seems to be working a little bit you know and they, they pioneered the whole sport which is very interesting to me that's that's super cool i love that uh but but the type of person that got into permit fishing when i started guiding was a guy that had already done all the rest of it right yeah. and then you started getting frontier. these then you started to get these other guys that not only are they going from trout fishing in montana to permit but they also have zero experience with any saltwater species whatsoever which on the one hand is incredibly difficult but on the other hand it's like well just hit them in the head with the fly and don't do anything else well they can do that if that's if they get that real simple instruction of just just hit them in the head and let it fall and that's it it's kind, don't worry it's about kind of else. like dog smell fear i swear if a guy gets on and has no idea what a permit is doesn't even care yeah. and you're like just hit the fish in the head and they do it and they catch one first day like eh, no big deal yeah you know and and it's for everybody else that has like that that permit like shake and when the ray comes you're like okay this one's over 35 pounds this is a mile. you know what i mean like right. you can't even they can't even cast they right. get up on the front of the boat and they're like they they're just but a hot I, I do believe that there is something that's going on there with with that where where and it can happen with tarpon too it can happen with anything but yeah. you're so nervous that you know first of all that's the opposite of a flow state in a flow state you just you just flow you're just you just make the cast um, you know, like maybe you've been in Cosmolito all week long. How, how, how nervous were you to catch a bonefish on the last day? Right. Yeah. It's so smooth. Everything is smooth. You couldn't miss any, any, there's no way you're going to miss. You've caught 200 of them already. Right. Like 201 is going to be like backhanded behind the back over the shoulder. Oh, I got him. <laughs> oh, he came off. No big deal. Like I, I now I'll catch this one over here with my left hand. And you're just like, okay, well try that, you know, on your first day in the Bahamas and you're never going to be able to do it because, you know, I don't know why, but once you get in that flow state, that's great. But that, that's the opposite of the flow state, the knees knocking, the, the being so nervous. But what I was trying to get to is, is that, I spend a lot of time throwing crabs. I prefer to throw crabs now than to fly fish for them. And I just, one of the reasons why is because I like to see them eat. And I like to see, you know, with a crab, it's not like you just throw it out there and they just eat it. You have to put it in the right place. You can scare the hell out of them with a crab. And you can also place a crab in a, in a place where they don't see it and they don't want anything to do with it. You can, you can your crab can die and you throw it over there, and they don't want anything to do with it. And that's what I think. I think all of our crab flies look like dead crabs. And yeah. most people that are fly fishing for them, I think, don't have very much experience with throwing a live crab or throwing a dead crab. It's not easy. You have to be very good with a spinning rod. And once you are very good with a spinning rod, you can be super dangerous. You can catch five, six, seven, eight, ten in a day, but man, if I your crabs you, die, you're catching you zero in a day. Um, with 
with the, the dead crab and I have hundreds of pictures and dozens of videos of crabs where I just study crabs. I watch crabs in the water. I, how do they look like upside down? Cause the fish is going to be looking at them from the bottom or what do their legs do? Why their swim fins always have little checkers on them. Like all these little subtle nuances and characteristics or details that, that make a difference. And I think the, the thing, even when a crab is still, it's still, moving there's little mouth mouth parts going or i videoed these crabs in belize floating on mangrove leaves and it was the most interesting thing they always had like one leg going to steer and they're like you know one so like i started going to thinner and thinner rubber legs and keep them short so they're like vibrating right like there's always some sort of movement happening and for the mouth parts a lot of times i you know i i use uh, rabbit fur now because that stuff gets on you and you're tying flies and it like it's it's just it never goes away and when it's in the water it's always doing that little same thing undulating so i i think you you've nailed it you know the, the more research you can do and time you spend with the actual thing you're trying to emulate the better you're going to be your flies are going to get better your castings and your placements going to get better just understanding the organism that you're trying to represent with fur and feathers yeah you know i thought at one point i was like man if we could put like a little piece of alka-seltzer in here too like on the bottom of the of the thing there were bubbles because crabs are putting off bubbles too like a lot it's of out bubbles. there there's and, dudes in, in louisiana doing that for redfish too really with alka-seltzer yeah See, and they bubble I, that's yep. where you have a great idea 20 years ago and you're like you, eh, you know who wants it? That's probably cheating. Like, I yeah, don't know. You know, it's, it's not it's cheating like, though. It's like, that's, that's, I don't know. We're just trying I, to, it's not like you're, you're, you're going to do that. And then all of a sudden say that you're like, that you're like the best permit fisherman in the world. Now it's like, no man, we're trying to get better at this. Like, and, and that's where I, I, I leaned into the bait fishing. It's like, I'm trying to get better at fly fishing and so I'm going to do more and more and more bait fishing. So I see more and more and more of these fish eat and more of their, their natural behavior and more of them eating something the way that they would eat a, a normal thing. And you get to do that with bonefish all the time. But permit is just a, a, a funny fish like that, that, that it's, I just think that fly fishing for them is so ineffective and, and people would be like, what? It's we're way better than you were back then. Okay. Well, sure. But you still don't catch very many compared to bone fishing or compared to red fishing or compared to, you know, Jack Crevel fishing or some, or even tarpon fishing. Like you catch more, the flies just represent what they're eating and it's, it just works better. Right. And don't get me wrong. I checked it off, you know, like I got a 34 pounder in Bahamas, which was like the Holy grail for me. And I got, um, a nice 12 to 15 pounder. We didn't weigh it, you know, pretty fish in Belize this year. And, you know, I'll still permit fish, but given the opportunity, I'd rather bone fish i'd rather yeah. duck hunt over deer hunt because right. of the camaraderie i want to be walking shoulder to shoulder hey tom look at this one or here mm-hmm. they come you know it's so fun. just it's like a team sport like walking fields for pheasants or you're, you're just you're it with is. your buddies but as as a angler guide team permit fishing there is yeah. a, there's a lot of that that you really yeah. need to and be that, like that, in that sync is the, and that's, that's that's the key having yeah. a guide and you guys working in tandem yeah um, one of the things about that little fly that you showed me, 
the reason why I don't use a lot of those little ultra realistic flies is because I think most tires are the hooks are way too small. And, and when I think about getting a 35 pound permit on one of those things and, and the body of the crab, I'm not saying exactly the one that you're talking about, but there's a lot of crabs. It started out with the Mick crab, right? It was like, it was like an epoxy body and deer hair back. And there was almost zero hook gap. Yeah. And I would, I I just, I'm not going to risk it on that. Like, I can't tell you. I think How many the hooks manufacturers I've worked with on that. And Gamagatsu actually kind of cracked the code with their, um, they make, yeah, wide gap hooks. And they also make a 3H, which is like um, three times the wire. So as you drop mm-hmm. down into the smaller hook sizes, the wire isn't so insignificant that they can crush it. Right. And Hen- Mike Hennessy out of um, Hawaii got me started on those for bonefish because he was throwing like 12s and you know, just itty bitty eights, tens, and the bonefish or regulars, as you know, like um, 34007 style Genesee hook. If you went down to like an eight, the wire was too small. So if you catch a 10, 12 pound bone, there's no way you're keeping it mm-hmm. on. Right. And they're, or they crush it. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. You know, these really short shank wide gap hooks that allow you to put something on the inside and still have plenty of, of effectiveness of the gap. Yeah. You know, that's like the, the SL 12 S and those super wide short shanks are all I use on crabs. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, man. This has been really great. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you had some stuff going on, uh, but that last little part about the permit flies, that's what I kind of wanted yeah. to talk about. And it was, it's really, really interesting to see. Where, I enjoyed the coffee talk too. Yeah. No, no, man. It was great. We'll have you on again. I got to get you some, uh, some black rifle coffee. Uh, somehow I'll get some over to you. And, uh, Sounds great. You can, uh, you can try that out. You know, I'm going. afraid I'm going to be hooked on that stuff. Those guys are they send it to me every week. Oh, there's a coffee club. You can join that. Um, you get it every month. Hey, tell people how they find how they join your newsletter, how they find your books. Like what what? How do people find you? Got you? it. Instagram uh, dr Chacon is probably the most up to date if you're looking for new content. Um, my website saltyflytying.com has all my books and uh, newsletters and all the uh, fly tying materials and things like that. But uh, you can always email me uh, Drew at Salty Fly Tying if you have questions or uh, DM me on Instagram. That's probably the fastest. Awesome. And you got hosted trips going too. Always, always trying to put together. I got a little company called Lux Cadre, and it's it's more than just hunting and fishing. It's the food too for oh, nice. us old folks. So uh, they are into the fancy schmancy cocktails and high end food, and so I try to put together experiences that are the whole thing. So bring your wife, your family, whatever. We do family trips, couples trips, dudes trips. Oh, that's really we, uh, cool. Yeah, dude. We'll you got a website that. for that? Mm-hmm. I don't, that's, I'm trying to keep that real small. What I found is, uh, you know, it's, it's friends of friends. It's by kind of, I would say referral only at this point, but if you have questions or you want to go somewhere, um, email me. Um, that's one cool thing about being in this business is you get some great connections and you know what time and uh, where to be when. So, um, I get to go to some pretty cool places and eat some delicious food and hunt and fish some great stuff. 
That sounds awesome. All right, Drew, man. Awesome conversation. Thanks for being on and, and helping us out with a bunch of uh, fly tying information. And uh, you got it. That'll be always it a today. pleasure. All right, thanks, Drew. We'll see you later.